From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, my longtime collaborators, fellow faculty at the Wharton School, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. We are all here coming to you via Zoom. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday morning on SiriusXM. Be replayed a few times over the week. We'll also get the podcast up uh, to sometime tomorrow. Appreciate y'all listening. We've got a two-hour show, as we usually do. We're going to do interviews in Qs 2 and 3, and then come back to open topics, open lines, as we used to say in Q4. Our guest this week, fun fun guest this week, conversations with Travis Sachik, the baseball writer, book author, Travis Sachik, in Q2, talk a little baseball, talk both about the rule changes that, that are really kind of shaking up the baseball universe these days. A lot of fun. Talk about those with Travis, then a little preview of the 2023 season. In Q3, we have Todd Stusey, the longtime offensive lineman in the NFL and previous guest on our show. Travis has been a previous guest as well. We've been a few years since we talked to Todd. Always fun to talk to. Super thoughtful guy. He's in data science now, so he knows our language. He thinks our in our terms, but he played in the NFL for 14 years. The NFL Combine is going on right now, so we thought we'd ring up Todd and re- talk a little bit about that. We talk football in Q3 with Todd, and then we keep, because we are this way, we keep talking football into Q4. That leaves what, gentlemen? That leaves basketball for dang sure, right? I mean, it's heating up. Uh, we're we're uh, some distant from that circus in Vegas that they call the All-Star Game. We're back into real basketball. What's the latest? What's the greatest? Let's start with baseball, basketball. What's caught your eye in the NBA? Well, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I, you know, after watching last night's game and I've been watching, you know, the Sixers. Well, this is the Sixers Celtics thing that goes down to the wire and they. No, not that game. It was last night's game where the Sixers lost to the Heat. So this pattern is starting to happen over and over again now, which is, again, the Sixers. If you bought the process the first time, I think it's getting close to the process, too. And here's what I mean. They have Joel Embiid, who's obviously one of the top 10 players in the NBA, no doubt about it. Harden, I don't think, is anymore one of the top players in the NBA. They have Tyrese Maxey, good player. Uh, you know, they've got a lot of good players. The problem is they're not better than the Bucks in the East. They're not better than the Celtics in the East. We can debate whether they're better than the Heat in the East. Like, I just do not see a scenario where with this squad – and even if they develop the young talent, that they win an NBA title. And this, you guys remember, that's what led to the process. Mm-hmm. They had, they were a 45 to 50 win team for four or five straight years. They just could never really get past. I mean, can the Sixers win one round in the playoffs? Yes. But to win the second round in the playoffs is not going to be trivial for them. I don't see any upside. And I continue to tell you when the best player is a center, you're going to have trouble because at the end of the game, just like last night, Joel Embiid is not taking the winning shot because you can't get him the ball. It's James Harden taking the winning shot. And he's got a long history of underperforming in those moments. So I just don't see a – I'd hope the Sixers win the title. I just don't see the upside. I've even forgotten the, the, some great teams in the West. At best, they're the fifth or sixth best team in the NBA. 
And if anything, Harden's getting worse. I think Embiid's at his peak. Um, I just don't see it. Yeah, but I mean, do you uh, do you actually think that the? I mean, I mean, because are you arguing for like a repeat of the process where they completely draw, blow it up and like tank for three, four years? Because um, a that's not guaranteed to result in in, in yeah. A we talked team. about that's, that. We talked about that we're, last we're, week. We're seeing the result of that now, right? Um, so I, I guess the counter argument could be: Are they? Obviously, I, I agree. As currently constructed, they're not gonna. They're not likely to get over the hump. It's just whether you could argue: Are they one or two players away that could be acquired via free agency or trading over the hump, or is it the kind of the window closed on that and they just need to blow it up at this point? Well, guys, I want to ask a question about your fifth and sixth uh, position. If you're going into the the baseball players playoffs as the fifth or sixth best team, I like my chances. I mean, they're not as good as the first or second, but I like yep. my chances. Yep. In yep. basketball, what's the deal? I mean, what are your what are your chances? And I think it's horrible, right? I mean, what would you horrible. say? Horrible. Yeah. yeah. Horrible. Abs. That's great. 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 But my back, Adi, we could rank order the sports. Let's rank order right. them. I think well, we'd like on, our chances a little let's bit. Acknowledge, let's acknowledge up front that the Warriors won the whole thing last year coming out of a lower position, but it was misleading because they, yeah. hadn't, they hadn't had their players together for, yeah. in like, for like one game the whole season. Right. So yeah, no, I, I think Adi's point's a great one. Let's, we've done this before, but it's probably been five or six years, Adi. Let's rank order the sports. I think most people would say fifth or sixth best team in hockey. Looking good. Looking good. Looking yeah. good. Fifth or sixth best team in, you even mentioned, in uh, baseball. Absolutely. The Shane Jensen coin yeah. flipping yeah. model. Yeah. You absolutely are in there. You absolutely have a shot. Fifth or sixth best team in the NFL. I mean, the problem there is, of course, under the per- current playoff scenario, you're playing an extra game. So I can't like you well, that. I know. No. Quickly, no, where, no. Where, where were the Bucks in the power rankings the year that they won four road games a few years ago? Brady Was it Brady's first year down there? Yeah, that was Brady's first year. Yeah, they yeah. didn't win their division. The Saints won the division that year. I think the Bucks were probably five or six. You probably have it right, yeah, Nate. I mean, they the, probably were. The Giants, no. won, the Giants won both of their recent Super Bowls as wildcard teams. I mean, wildcard teams win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean. I, not, I have, not irregularly. I right. actually don't put the NFL that far behind baseball. I mean, it's a bit further, but that's because the top team has the Okay, has but, the but either way, Adi, you bring up the important point is NBA's Definitely at the bottom. There's yeah, no doubt crazy. about it. No yeah. doubt about it. And by the way, the other problem is, let's say the Sixers, by the way, right now it looks like the Sixers are going to be locked in at the three seed, okay? You know what that means, Adi? If it goes to chalk, they have to beat the Celtics and the Bucks no just to get out of the East. No mm-hmm. chance. No, remember, three plays two, and then if they win, they're going to play one. So you're going to have to forget the West, which Kate pointed out, the Warriors are the defending NBA champions. They have to beat the Celtics and the Bucks to advance at the three seed. Not going to happen. Wouldn't you argue that right this year of all years, it's a little bit more wide open than it has been over the past decade? I mean, we at least it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's less of this kind of super, there's more parity at at least the top end where the number of teams you could kind of conceive of winning it all probably is getting into the like five or six team range compared to like the era that we just came out of where it was the Cavs versus the Warriors in the finals for what seemed like four or five seasons in a row. Yeah. I, so I, 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 I mean, the field's a little bit more open right now just because yeah. the most recent super team attempts haven't been as successful 
as the previous part so, yeah. of super team attempts. You're saying the, ca- the power ranking gap between one, two is not that far from three right. and four. It yeah. usually is bigger. Listen, I just came back from New York and the, the, and the New York Post was yapping away about the Knicks. Is that something to pay attention to or is that uh, just the New York Post? No, it's something to pay attention to. The Knicks are the Knicks are real. I mean, they're real enough in the sense that their trajectory, by the way, seems upward. Um, you can't convince me that they couldn't beat the Sixers, for example, in a seven-game series. I think they could. I think their chance of beating the Celtics and the Bucks, I think it's low. It's just you know they they nefariously, and I don't mean this in a negative way. They've nefariously def- uh, you know designed the NF. Cade loves when we talk about playoff design. Seven games is a lot of games in basketball. Wow, to beat a team four games, that's a lot of games in the NBA. You know, if it was yeah, best- remind me, remind me, some of the early series are not seven, right? The first round is just three or five. Is that I right? I think it's five. I just I honestly don't remember between yeah. sports. I think in basketball it might be best of five, but every other series is best of seven. And you know, can the Knicks beat the, you know, I don't know, the Bucks? Yes. Can they beat them four games? I don't know, Adi. I, I, I just don't yeah. see it. I just don't see it happening. And by the way, I, I, I actually remember, by the way, I've been a high on the Bucks all season long. I know it's true. They're on a 14-game winning streak right now. Um, they're a healthy team. I, I think they would have been in the NBA Finals last year had they been healthy. It wouldn't have been the Celtics, just my own opinion. Um, but there, I, I think there is a gap in the East. I think one and two are much better than everybody else. And actually, just in terms of wins and losses, um, they're both, I think, at 17 losses. The Sixers are either at 20 or 21. Then there's like 23 or 24. So right now, there's six or seven games better than really the rest of the gap there. So I, I think the East, there's a bigger gap. But I, I, I agree with Shane. In the West, though, I think the West is more wide open because the top two teams are Denver and Memphis in the West. And I don't think anybody's going to put a ton of money that it's going to be Denver or Memphis. I'm not saying it's not going to be. But I'm just saying the West is more wide open. But the East, there's really two elite teams. There's two elite teams in the East. By the way, I'm not convinced the Sixers are going to beat the Heat in a seven-game series either, or the Knicks. So just to give you 538's numbers, they're one of our most frequently cited um, base basketball power rankings. They had the Bucks and Celtics like dead even. Their full-strength rating for those two teams is within two points of each other. They give them the same 32% chance of making the finals. They give them the same 18% chance of winning the thing. By the way, they had the Nuggets a tick above those guys, both in full strength rating and in chance of making the finals and in chance of winning the finals coming out of the West. And so Nuggets have really kind of snuck up there. Grizzlies, as you said, somehow in the West, despite being (laughs) on the East Bank of the Mississippi, they are the second best team in there. Warriors sneaking up there. Mavs, of course. And then you got to consider the Suns. Once Durant absolutely, court, I mean, what happens with Durant there? The West is going to be, the West is going to be super interesting. Okay, um, what else around the NBA, Eric? Well, I, I, did we get enough out of Shane's question about the rebuild? Because, you know, I, I don't know I, what Maury was expecting or what the ownership was expecting of Maury, but do they want? Would he want to take that? job would he want that next stage and do they want him for that next day i mean he that, might be a perfect guy for it but i don't know does he have the stomach for that again i don't know we talked about that a little bit last week if you remember you know we can go through the sixers picks from that emanated from the process i mean i i i hate again to keep going back to the trade for markel fultz but either way all i'm commenting on is i agree with shane it's not obvious that the process would lead to anything either because there's so much uncertainty. It, unless, unless you're in the top draft, one or two draft picks, 
four could be a good player, 12 could be a good player. It's not that obvious that tanking just to, to get higher draft picks, because the Sixers aren't going to tank enough to get one or two. Remember, there's a lottery also in the NBA, and they flattened the lottery. So to tank, you know, even the tankiest team is not even twice. Maybe you have twice the odds of like the eighth or ninth place team, but you're not, it's not like you have 40% to get the number one pick. I think it's now down to like 15%. So they're they're not even they're disincentivizing tanking anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think if you could talk Daryl into taking the job, there aren't many people you'd want more to to to. He, well, he, obviously, he's in the job, but like to stick around for that kind of rebuild, that's a project, and you want somebody as sharp as him. I don't I don't know if he's up for it. I don't know if the ownership is up for it. It'd be interesting to see how they went about it the second time after the first time they they kind of tilted the machine. So to try it again without tilting would be an interesting enterprise. I'd like to, I'd like to see what would happen if Daryl did stay in that position. Um, is any no one y'all aren't paying any attention to NCAA basketball, right? We're, we're we're like a week left of regular season. I think it's a, a well, we're still probably two weeks away from selection. Um, after the regular season, we'll have conference tournaments, but um, the we are coming up on it, and it's and you talk about the NBA being a wide open field. We've got a much wider open field in the NCAAs. So if you haven't started paying attention, start, start paying attention um, going forward. Um, What else guys, what what other sports are you interested in? Well, something actually happened in tennis that hadn't happened in years. So Barbara Krachekova, who by the way, has a major, she won, I believe it was the French a couple of years ago, did something that rarely, rarely happens. In this most recent tournament that she played, she beat the top three women in the world. So she beat Jess Pagulia, Arna Sabalenka, and Iga Swantek, who's the number one player in the world. She beat all three of them on the way to the title. And I believe she also beat a fourth top 10 player. So besides beating four top 10 players in a tournament, she beat one, two, and three in the world. And I don't think that had been done in women's tennis for over 20 years. And even in men's tennis, it happened maybe once or twice in the last 20 years. First of all, they all have to play. The seeding yes. has to work yeah. out that, yeah, that yeah, you yeah. actually, that they don't eliminate each other. But I mean, let's not say there's 10,000 opportunities for that to happen. And it's happened one out of 10,000, but just to play the, t- and also just fatigue and effort. I mean, it's just remarkable to accomplish that. And and to me, it's, I don't want to overplay what it is. It wasn't a major it's best, you know, it's, it's also, but it's one of the top tennis feats. It will be one of the top tennis feats of this year. How about that? Great, Eric. Thank you. Well, tell us a little bit more about Krachikova. Well, she's a major champion. Um, she's definitely a top 10 player, but she's one of those players, big serve, big hitter. And so, you know, maybe maybe it's like what we've been talking about in golf the last couple of weeks, which is, you know, you get on in tennis, you can get on for periods of time. And as a matter of fact, Tennis is one of those sports where that's why it's also really hard to win lots of majors. Besides, they're on different surfaces, right? One's on hard court, two are on hard courts, one on grass, one's on clay. They spread them out. You have the Australian in January. Then you've got the French in, in May slash June. Then you got Wimbledon in the summer. And then you got the U.S. Open in September. You're going to stay hot for nine months? I mean, that's the other thing. So besides the surface differences, you have the time of the year differences. And so... That's why when you hear someone saying, you know, like when Djokovic was one match away from winning the Grand Slam just a couple of years ago when Medvedev beat him in the U.S. Open finals, I'm like, 
He did this over a nine-month period on three slash four different surfaces, the way you want to do it, and he did it for the entire season. That's just remarkable. But she's a great player. She's a great player. Eric, the talking about a, a big server getting hot makes me wonder whether there are aspects of the game that could get hot independent of other aspects of the game. And you could say the same thing for golf, maybe. Like a guy could really groove his drive for a while, and maybe that part of his game is on even though he's struggling with other parts of it. If that's true, and if it applies to tennis, man, if you're a big server and you, and you have that part of your game going, that could be enough to carry you through matches. That alone and, and would be I, enough to carry through matches. And I think you bring up the important question is, like, what does it mean to be hot for serving? Can you do it for four or five matches? That's yeah. the question I don't know. Like, in golf, you could, I mean, guys can drive the ball well for multiple rounds. Maybe the part I'm impressed by is Krachekova served extraordinarily well for five straight matches. And I, to me, that doesn't seem overwhelming, but maybe it is. Like maybe that, like we're, what we're talking about, maybe someone's serving well just for an entire match is a great accomplishment. And so doing it for five straight matches, I don't know what the length of hotness is that makes it so that it's a remarkable tennis serving performance. Next time we have a tennis guest on, I'm going to ask her or him that question. It's been a while since we've had a tennis guest. We need a tennis guest on here. Sack, where's Sackman? It's been years since we talked to Sackman. He's one of the best for us to talk to. We need oh Messi, the 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 coach we've had on more recently. Yeah, we've when's, had Paul Anacone on before. Maybe we could, Paul Anacone would certainly have a lot to say given who he's coached and everything over the years. You know, Sampras, Agassi, all those people. Uh, it would be great to hear his opinion on it as well. So, Eric, we're in the shoulder season of the majors. We've got a long run here before we run into what's the first one up? The French Open, I suppose. French is next. Okay, but that's still a couple of months away. Yeah, it's still a couple of months away. And then the real question is, is Nadal healthy? You know, if Nadal's healthy, he's the favorite in the French again, up for sure. But if he's not, the way Djokovic is mowing people down right now, I don't see how, you know, put this way, in the betting lines, given the uncertainty with Nadal, it would not surprise me if one looked at the betting line right now, not up to the French, right now, and and Djokovic was favored over Nadal. I would not be surprised at that at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, I saw that Djokovic broke graphs like all-time weeks at number one record. Is that right? I, 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 yeah, I, I somehow I mean, lost track that he had been in number one that long. Yep. He's got the most number ones. He's tied for the most majors. He's got the most Masters events, and he's got a winning record, albeit slightly against Nadal and Federer. He's just, you know, the statistics suggest he's the greatest of all time. Well, I tell you what, we had a a listener do an analysis inspired by one of our conversations. We're going to have to fold that back into a future tennis conversation. Maybe that'll help bridge us to Wimbledon, I mean, to to the French Open. Super interesting analysis, looking at how um, some Grand Slams are not equal. And in my my memory of that bottom line was that Djokovic came out best in his work. We'll get that we'll get that on air here in the next couple of weeks. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second quarter of this week's show. This is Cade Massey, joined by the whole crew this week, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. You guys can jump in here in a way, and we love it when you do. Hit us up on Twitter, probably the single best way to reach out to us. At WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports, sports analytics. We love to hear from you. 
whatever you got, suggestions, complaints, praise, we'll take it. Reach out to us. We also have an email. It's our mailbag of sorts. Hit us up by that. The address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send us. We get as much of it as we can onto the air, and we'd love to hear from you. Second quarter, we have been doing interviews in Qs 2 and 3 lately. Back to our original model, kind of liking it. We're going to do it again this week. Delighted to have Travis Sachik joining us this week. Travis has been on the show before, but it's been a few years. And we're always happy to talk to Travis. We're always happy to talk baseball, especially with you. I don't usually get this much buzz about baseball this early in the season, preseason that is, but there's a lot of buzz right now. So lots to talk about. Travis, as many of you know, he's a major league baseball writer at the score. He's the co-author of the MVP machine, a terrific book that came out, I think just pre pandemic with Ben Lindbergh. He's also the author of big data baseball. Always fun to talk to you. Travis. Good afternoon. Thanks for making time. Great to be with you guys. Travis, tell us where you're calling in from today. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Is that your home base? The west suburbs here, yes. That's uh, We've been here for five years now. I, I used to be in Pittsburgh when I was covering the Pirates and okay. to, uh, moved back. I came back home. So ah, Okay. Yeah. Does that mean you were raised on all of those Cleveland sports teams? <laughs> I've I've lived through a lot of heartbreak. As a yeah. uh, as a young person, so yeah. Well, that man, the Indians is—they're just always outperforming, and they're always right there, but they're never quite over it. They were so close. Yeah, they were. Yeah, I mean, love ninety five, ninety seven, twenty sixteen. So yeah, there's uh, we've we've lived through a lot of close calls here in Cleveland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was and it just baseball for you growing up, or was it? Are you into the Cavs and the Browns and the whole thing? Oh, uh, I'm a, I'm a Cleveland guy all the way through. So if, uh, celebrated the Cavs 2016 title, went downtown to, to watch game seven at, uh, anywhere we, we ended up at a, at a Mexican restaurant it was the only place with the television and a seat and we flooded into the streets afterwards and they wanted and, uh, stayed downtown that night. So yeah, I'm a Cleveland fan all the way through, which, uh, I probably have some small, small market team bias in my uh the way the lens through which i view the game (laughs) it's probably a product of being the little guy rooting for the little guy for so long right all right well um listen the the, we have lots of baseball questions we want to talk about the season in general but first let's hear a little bit of your reaction to the pitch count we i haven't even had a chance to talk about it with these guys we have um been trading texts over the last week as 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 uh, the impact of the pitch count seems to emerge. Um, what is your reaction to what's going on with pitch count so far? Uh, yeah, pitch I, count, pitch clock. Yeah, no, I love the clock. And uh, I mean, there are some kinks to work out and I don't know. I don't think anyone loves to see a game end on a, on a violation, but I, I, even when I was back on the pirate speed in 2014, I put a stopwatch and I really think it could be the call, the batter clock as much as a pitch clock, because there there's bigger culprits as a pitchers, but Way back when I was covering the Pirates a decade ago, I put a. Uh, I was just curious how much time batters stood outside the batter's box during a game because it seemed to me, just watching all the games that year, that man, there's just a lot of dead time. So it was a Sunday night game versus the Cardinals. It was a three-hour, thirty-seven-minute, nine-inning game, and every time the batter left with both feet, I started my uh, stopwatch, and every time I 
they went back in the box. I stopped it during the game. And it was about 40 minutes that batters spent just adjusting batting gloves, taking going through the routines. Like that's like more than 10% of the game right there is just dead time. And that's not even and then I didn't monitor the pitchers walking around, calling for a new ball, all that sort of thing. So even 10 years ago, it's like ah, the there's a problem with pace in the game. Incredible. Yeah, and I, I've noticed, I mean, obviously, just even with these spring training games, you can um, see the difference in terms of just the overall length of time the game takes. Uh, the, I don't know if we've got enough data yet to kind of anticipate some of the secondary effects. Like, do, will we see increased base running? with the pitch with the pitch clock in there because of course runners kind of now have a you know pitchers aren't going to be able to hold runners on in the same way that they were able to previously do you kind of anticipate that that's going to have a major effect or relatively minor effect yeah i don't i base running i think for that reason for the pickoff limitations and the slightly larger bases i think yeah we should see an uptick right in attempts and effectiveness and just guys even if those Secondary effects aren't that significant. I think it'll also have guys just thinking about it more like, oh, I should take advantage of this. So I would expect we we will see an uptake. I, I've i looked at the pitch clock. I haven't looked at the stolen base attempts yet this spring, but I, I know there is an increase at the, in the minor league levels last year, and I would expect some uh, – Although the run game controls better at the major league level, of course, I would, ex- you know, I think we're all expecting some level of increase. Now, does that benefit the super speedy guys? Does it benefit, well, more guys with moderate speed take advantage? I think, you know, th- that'll be something to take a look at. But, uh, yeah, I welcome more athletic plays, more athleticism in the game. So, Travis, uh, uh, obviously the pitch count is really important for the general pace of the game and our enjoyment of it. Games that it were two and a half hours are just much more interesting to watch than, than three. That's my, obviously my personal opinion, but one of the things that I'm looking forward to seeing a potential secondary effect is the pitchers are going to just going to be just a little bit more tired and they're just not going to have to be able to pace themselves throwing hundred percent on every pitch, which means that we might actually see some more hitting and, uh, and what are the early returns on that? I mean, I saw a quick quote from a hitter. McCutcheon is, was quoted in, I think, an article you wrote about how he's just out of breath because it's just <laughs> yeah. you just don't get much time. That must be impactful, even greater for the pitcher. Yeah, he was – I was just watching the – I was watching games yesterday, and they had McCutcheon mic'd up in the outfield during the game, and they're asking him about the pitch clock. And he said, yeah, I was out of breath leading off that inning. Running, uh, I almost needed to take a pitch just to catch my breath. So it has had an impact. I looked at the first 40 games of this spring versus the first 40 games of last spring, uh, nine inning games only. And it's uh, they're averaging two hours and 37 minutes through the first 40 versus 258 last year in spring. Oh, my so, beautiful. so that's 21 minutes a game, about four seconds between pitches. And uh, it was a 25-minute discount or quickening at the minor league level last year. So I think it will be something like – it will mirror this, I, I think, in the regular season. And I think it's good for the game. The average game, time of game from 1950 to 1985 was two hours, 29 minutes. That's when the game was most popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it should be played with a lively pace. Uh, my only quibble is, yes, I think high leverage spots, ninth inning, do those – I think there's some good theater when they're not rushed, especially in postseason. But overall, I think it's huge for the game uh, to make it more accessible and make more young people can watch the end of games, especially maybe, you know, those postseason games that end after midnight on the East Coast. Uh, It's really about 
even if we don't love everything about it, it's more about the next generation, I think, and making it more accessible to, to young people. Mm-hmm. So, Travis, I want to ask you, uh, I'll turn your McCutcheon story around, but maybe building on what Adi said to the pitcher side. If pitchers are also more fatigued, won't they have to change pitchers more often? And won't that slow the game down? And how much effect do you see? I've heard a number of the dominant pitchers say, I may not be able to go 90 to 100 pitches given the speed at which I'm pitching. What, what do you think the effect there might be? Yeah, I guess I didn't get around to answering that question. <laughs> I ramble, but it's going to be interesting to, to see. Uh, and, you know, you'd hate to see injuries occur, especially. That's another possibility. Yep, for uh, sure. And I'm sure every injury early on will be you know, tied to wondering. Now, the problem with the minor league level is we we're coming off the last the last year with COVID. So when we look at like workloads last few years, a lot of guys are building up and whatnot. But last year, there were more pitchers that reached uh, 130 plus innings at the minor league levels than the year previous. Uh, but, but yeah, it's tough to compare because there was no minor league season in 2020. So is 2021 really a fair comparison? And you would... There is some relate. There's been studies. I think Rob Arthur and others have looked at the relationship between time between pitches and velocity, and there you would there should be some benefit for that little micro rest between offerings. So you mm-hmm. wonder, yeah, stamina. Will we see velocity dip? Although interestingly, uh, as Baseball America had the Statcast data and or the TrackMan data, and uh, the average minor league fastball last year was 92.3 miles an hour, and it was 92.3 the year before. So I, I would expect a dip, but we didn't see that uh, last mm-hmm. year. But yeah, I think you do worry about stamina workloads. How will pitchers adapt? Will some be more effective than others? Or will some game the system a little bit? Like I saw Max Scherzer working really quickly the other day. I think he recorded a strikeout in 27 seconds. And he was kind of experimenting with an up-tempo approach. Like we've seen up-tempo football and basketball. Maybe we'll see some up-tempo pitching in shorts uh, mm-hmm. to mess with the timing of batters. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the kind of the the trouble with sort of studying the effect of this particular change is it's kind of it's it's going to be confounded with all the other rule changes that are coming in in baseball. So, for example, Audie asked about, you know, whether this is going to lead to an uptick in hitting because the pitchers are more fatigued. But I mean, you know, the, trying to measure that relative to the uptick in hitting, we kind of expect from from restricted defensive uh, fielder shifting. Yeah. I mean, restricted fielder shifting has got to have that much more of a role to play in that. Do you kind of, I, I, I don't know what, how much they experimented with that in the minor leagues prior to this season. And if they did like, you know, do you have any insight into what, what would, to the extent that we're going to get more hitting, I certainly, I think these rule changes are in part designed to give us more hitting, how much more hitting, you know, how much more will kind of restricting defensive shifting affect hitting versus, you know, pitch clock and some of these other rule changes. Yeah. It's uh it's going to be really difficult to parse it, to, isolate the changes i think but i do my suspicion is we will see you know batting averages tick up especially for the guys like Corey seager who hit the ball hard on the pool side and uh you know those left-handed hitters heavy ground ball guys low liner guys you would you would think they would benefit from this uh but maybe complicating that is what if pitchers have an advantage and you know increasing tempo in some spots and batters so i would the thing that struck me for the few, first few days of watching is it's almost like the hitters are having more difficulty adapting, but pitchers are also only working like two inning stints right now. So their stamina is not being tested. So mm-hmm. there's, those are great questions. I don't, my suspicion is we'll see more offense this year uh, because of the 
just the combination of shifts, uh, pitchers with less, I would think, velocity at least levels off, if not ticks down this year, and uh, some stamina issues. But who you knows? It's it's going to be the most interesting year of watching baseball in a long time because there's just so much unknown to uh, to look into, and the games are going to be happening quick. Uh, and I think that they're going to be more enjoyable to watch and can even want most West coast games should be ending before midnight. So maybe we'll see some more West coast stars versus East coasters. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Travis, since we're scientists, let me put out a hypothesis and you tell me whether you <laughs> think it might be true. So let's imagine we look at last year, or the last couple of years, we look at what pitchers naturally work fast. We look at what hitters naturally don't take a lot of time in the box and maybe we come up with a theory that they'll perform better early on in the season to their counterparts. Is that a ridiculous hypothesis, or do you think there's a chance that might hold? I, I would think there's a, a chance that might hold. Uh, they will have to make fewer adjustments. And if pitchers were relying on that time to gain extra velocity through you know, that micro rest between pitches, what if, uh, what if a guy like uh, Gallegos in St. Louis or – Kenley Jansen, some of the slowest workers lose a mile per hour on their fastball or something. Yeah, they would, they would be affected. So I think that hypothesis would have some merit. Be curious Mm -hmm. to test it early this season. Travis, Uh, actually, I go ahead. I was going to change something. Go ahead. Just going to say that that's the kind of data we can really assess quickly and accurately, and we get some of those those answers really quickly. Um, I wonder, you know, one of the things that Major League Baseball never published was the time between pitches. I know the teams have it, the the people who bought the, the feed have it, but I never did. And so you, you you could have historically looked whether the long delays between pitches were correlated with faster pitching, but uh, you know we can't see that now. So now we can just look at it as a batch and see whether mm-hmm. once the new change, whether they whether there's more movement, you can check for that, whether there's more speed and all that stuff in the first month, we should know the answer to. I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so baseball, Travis, baseball savant should be getting a lot of web traffic and you know, yeah. really the season. By the way, y'all, the way y'all are talking about this season, especially Travis just said super, you know, the changes are stacking up here. Maybe more substantively different than any change in a while. It reminds me the 2024 college football season. People are talking about that in the same way. It's like, this is just going to be almost a different sport because of all the restructuring. It's fun to think about baseball being in that kind of shift right now. It does feel that way to me to watch the games with a pitch clock. I'm like three years from now, 10 years from now, we're not going to imagine how we lived before this era because it's such a different vibe. Let's talk about what expectations are for this season. Um, What are some of the storylines, Travis, that you're most interested in? My only request to you is, if the, 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 you subordinate the Yankee storyline, these guys will surface that one quick enough. So whatever you're going to lead with, just let it not be the Yankees. We can get to it eventually. Yeah. The, well, there's, there's so much to get into. Uh, I mean, I do think the NL West is interesting to me because, like the Dodgers 111 wins a year ago. And uh, you know, Gavin Lux just ahead of that unfortunate ACL injury. He's gone. They, they weren't that active and filling the seemingly most obvious question marks in their roster. So Padres, of course, spent a lot of money. Uh, that's going to be really interesting. I think the Diamondbacks, not that they'll be a threat to win a division, but really strong farm system, some interesting young guys coming up. And uh, can they get, you know, Kettle Marte and other players, can they bounce back? Uh, so, yeah, that division as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mets, of course, the NL East, I think, is interesting. Mets, of course, uh, Phillies, 
could we see a teenage pitcher for the Phillies and painter making an <laughs> impact on that rotation this year? Braves wow. are ex Braves are excellent. I think that's going to be a great division race. Uh, you know, what will Shohei Otani do in his walk year? Will he put on, will he, just as judge kind of rose to the moment last year and having that great, you know, historic mm-hmm. season, what, what will a super motivated Otani do uh, for mm-hmm. the angels? Uh, Before you and, leave that point, can you can you can you remind us all what the current thinking is on how the team uses him? The between pitching and hitting, what's the what's the current philosophy? Yeah, he's uh, he's basically he's been a they've used a six man rotation. He's basically been pitching uh, once a week. He rarely makes two starts in a week, so he's essentially been a once a week pitcher and an almost and nearly an everyday player at DH in the lineup. So I think it's the idea is he's supposed to pitch. Every six, I think the one tweak this year is he's, they want him pitching every six days, even if it doesn't quite, and they'll skip more spots to make that happen. I, I believe that's correct. I might need to double check the, the reporting on that. But yeah, I think his usage will be pretty similar with maybe, I think the expectation is maybe he gets four or five more starts this year. That's my understanding. Okay. If he's, if he's healthy. The, is the idea that the regularity is just helpful? So you'd just rather have a set frequency regardless of how how often the games are just to make for physically it's an advantage? Yeah, I think because in Japan, I uh, you know, the, the repetition was once a week on the mound generally. And I think they try to recreate that to some degree. And I also think they don't know there's never there hasn't been a player like this really ever. Even Babe Ruth wasn't logging the volume on both sides at that he, he's done uh, in the same year. So it's like, how do you manage this? And it's like each year the angels have become a little more comfortable and putting a little more on his plate. And, okay. uh, and if you're not going to be able to sign him, you might as well push the limits this year. Right? <laughs> oh, great, great, great. Listen, one, one Otani follow-up and then Adi um, is, is, is he a proof of concept that's going to increase the likelihood of somebody else doing this is we, we know he's a freak in many ways, but is he also, just paradigm breaking in some sense in that now that he's shown it can be done, somebody else is going to try. Yeah. I think we've seen a little bit of that. Like uh, Tampa Bay had the uh, Brendan Mc, Brandon McKay, who he was a top prospect. They were letting him go. He's had to deal with some injuries, but they drafted him as a pitcher, but they also let, he was a two way player in college and they, they let him uh, hit and pitch in college. And who was the other recent one? There's another one kid out of Michigan I can't remember but to your point I do think uh even if it's not necessarily two-way players although they would they certainly help in this era where roster crunches are always occurring with you know pitcher usage and whatnot the the idea to maybe convert a former outfielder into a pitcher if he had a good arm but he couldn't hit and but we had Rick uh, and Keel right we had Rick Rick and Keel the other way around yeah went the other way around yep Uh, but I, I think teams will definitely be less likely to just take a two-way player and say, you, you can't pitch. You can't do both. You have to pick one. Like what the Pirates did with John Van Benscoten, if you remember him, uh, 2001. He led Division One in home runs, and he was a pitcher at Kent State, but they, they limited him to only pitching, and he blew out his arm. Uh, I think in today's game, he gets a chance to do bo- both, prove okay. if he can, or really find out the pro level what he can do better. And right. maybe it opens minds to more experimentation and pos- converting position players to pitchers, that sort of thing. So I have a, a comment in the question. The comment is in almost in response to the, the series. Uh, I don't think it's going to, I think, I think Otani's a freak. Um, I think there's been nationally 
base hitting five pitchers for so long that that yeah they'll they may let someone try but there's been so much opportunity to pit to do be a, a valuable producer at the plate and no one really has done so um that just leads to the basic idea that what otani and ruth before him were just they were just crazy crazy outliers <laughs> um but my question though is how how do the angels have possibly the two best players in baseball I mean, the two of them alone add 20 wins over replacement practically, yet they're perennially non-competers. What is going on there? And is this year going to look any better? Yeah, it's not the NBA where you can have two superstars and <laughs> there'd be a pretty good team, right? Uh, I, I do think, you know, they've suffered from weak drafting development, weak farm systems, and they've just had so many holes in their roster for so long. I do think their lineup is deeper this year with uh, – Gio or Shella coming over. Uh, is it Drury? Is those uh, so their lineup is deeper? And I think their pitching staff, their starting rotation, is uh, pretty interesting. Especially assuming we get a full year from Otani. The bullpen has some questions, but I do think this is a deeper lineup, uh, a better pitching staff than they've had in most years of when they've had control over these two dynamic superstars. But I think, unfortunately, it's probably the last year they'll have Otani. And uh, I don't think they – they just didn't have a strong enough farm system, organizational depth to really turn it around quickly enough why they had, had these two great players under control. Mm-hmm. And, he, and I think also let's not minimize the, the, the timing of having the Houston Astros in the same division <laughs> of them. I mean, if, if, the, if, if, if the Angels were in one of the central divisions – Maybe they would have made the playoffs even last year. Yeah. But, but I mean, they've been, they basically, I, I mean, I think the quickest answer is they've been in the division with the best team in baseball for the last, you know, essentially almost a dynasty level team at this point uh, mm-hmm. for the last five years. But there's but so I, many other ang- angles in, I mean, with the wild card and they didn't. Compete it's it's true. It's true. But I mean, you know, again, with the really unbalanced schedule, let's see how they do this year. Again, another rule change or structural change we haven't talked about is the schedules are going to be much. Right more balanced as well. So, I mean, you know, they not only did they have to beat the Astros to win the division, we had, they had to play the Astros 19 times in a season as well. But I mean, I think it is also that, you know, it's telling, I think the the MLB rankings came out of the top 100 players and the angels had exactly two of them. (laughs) Yeah. I started. They had had two in the top three and two in the top a (laughs) hundred. Yeah. Stars and and scrubs does not really work in baseball. You have to have, uh, you can't afford to be below average in too many spots there. I mean, there's almost, if you're average at every spot, you almost have an advantage. So I think the angels were a great test of that. Can you have just two mega stars and, uh, yeah, it doesn't really work in this game. Well, wow. really, yeah, almost so tawny. It's almost like they have three mega stars. I'm not so sure you have an advantage if you're. That would imply some sort of you know reverse kind of cavity. Um, but uh, do you, is there any chance that uh, Trout was going to ask for a trade and we can actually get him on a real team for the rest of his career? Because <laughs> I, I just feel it's unfortunate that this is the an epic generational player that has just not been useful for the for the game. Crowdsource. For, we, let's crowdsource a buyout. Yeah, yeah. You, you would th- at some point. Uh, that could be on the table and we all want to see Mike Trout play some meaningful October games. So let's, whether that's with the angels or elsewhere, let's hope we don't get what you asked for. Watch him get traded to the Astros. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, really, when you say that, Arnie, you want him on the Yankees. I mean, you wouldn't want him to go to, you, you'd rather him stay in the Angels than go to the Red Sox. Right? Yeah, but you know so. what? I'd rather him go to the for the freaking Baltimore Orioles. You know? Yes. Yes. I'd like to see him. You know? Yeah. We don't see players demand trades and and baseball like we do the nba uh so yeah but but trout is one player who maybe could uh compel the team to move him and uh yeah at some point it might make depending on their state of their system and whatnot it could make right Right. some sense travis can can you name an organization or two that you think might be just off the radar but you're impressed with you know that baseball is fair bit more sophisticated than other sports in that there are lots of strong organizations. Um, and, but we, we know a lot of, we talk about a lot of them. You're pretty deep into the game. Are there organizations out there that you think are up and coming, or you think maybe they're not yet showing on the field, how good they are. You mentioned the diamondbacks, for example, I know those guys came out of the Boston system and maybe they're a strong, maybe they've had a, a long run at it yet, but they haven't shown anything. Is there anybody like that? You think we might ought to be paying attention to uh, do the do the Orioles still count, even though they're coming off a 31 game improvement? Uh, yeah, they've I mean, just mentioned the Astros and the kind of dynasty they built. Uh, that was a lot of that was through. I mean, part of it was through savvy transactions like adding a Verlander or Garrett Cole through trades, but a lot of it was player development practices. And mm-hmm. as I wrote about with Ben Lindbergh and MVP Machine, they were they were the organization we focused on. Mm-hmm. Of course, it later turned out they had the science student scandal. So that, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but that that sort of diminished the put a cloud over their legacy. But it does doesn't change the fact that they were ahead of the curve in all these player development advances from the educational high speed cameras to thinking about how to develop plate discipline. And uh, you you're know, confident that that travels that travels with them. Two the two two of the top three execs go to Baltimore, and you're confident it travels with them. But they yeah, also have I, in that division. They got the toughest division in baseball. Yeah, I think so. My I think a lot of it has traveled with them. And I think Gunnar Henderson's a good example of a guy who really bought in and, you know, accelerated up prospect list last year. Uh, Adley Rutschman's, he was a first overall pick. So I don't know how much credit you can give for, for that one. But yeah, I think Kyle Bradish had a big second half. Can they get more of their starting pitchers would, which would be huge. So okay. I think a lot of that's traveled. They're a good test. They're in the toughest neighborhood, arguably in baseball. And it's a good test case to see if the Astro way, without sign stealing can work at other locations and including one of the toughest places to win, which Mm -hmm. is Baltimore and the, the AL East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, 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 great nomination. Appreciate Uh, that. And And Cleveland. I mean, I don't know how much credit they get, but we give them credit all the time around here. What they've done on the pitch and development side has uh, been really remarkable. And uh, they're going to continue to do it with the next wave coming up. Uh, Cody Morris, uh, Bybee, hopefully Daniel Espino can stay healthy, but they keep developing these these arms, and it's something of a of a pitching factory. Well, say 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 more about that, Travis, because they are remarkable in their outperforming their payroll for for decades now, literally decades now, and we're we know them some, and we're super impressed with them, and we brag them all the time. But you're there, and it's your sport. What's your assessment of why the Indians are so successful and they've been so sustained in that success? Yeah, they, uh, this is the Moneyball show and the A's hired uh, Deep Podesta from, from the Indians from back, in, back in the right. day. He was like fifth on the depth chart. Uh, so really, the, the Indians were right with the A's, if not ahead of them, and doing some of the stuff. Yeah. Michael Lewis just didn't visit them. Uh, 
Yeah, I think some of it, they've always been, a, I think, a, a curious organization. They've they innovated a number of things like the pre-arbitration contracts back, extensions back in the day. And they've, they've kept, because of their limited resources from ownership, they've kept uh, exploring, being curious, testing things. And they've also had some front office, front office continuity where you can mm-hmm. go back to the John Hart front office where all this kind of started and you can kind of connect a line to Mark Shapiro, to Antonetti who worked under Shapiro. So they've had this continuity of, I think, the process that works and uh, that like-mindedness. But, but that, in some sense, that just raises the next question. Why the continuity? So Shapiro goes to Toronto, Antonetti steps in, but Antonetti's staff, I mean, I don't know all of it, but it's like more or less been the same. The head guys there have been the same for years. Why is Why are they able to maintain the continuity? Uh, I think they, they'd probably point to their, I know culture's a buzzword and somewhat ambiguous, but they, I think they believe they have a place that people want to show up and work to. And people feel like they have some level of autonomy, autonomy. And uh, I, I wish I could get, I would love for them to let me in, write a book about your, your program and your culture. And I, <laughs> I could tell you a bit more, but uh, yeah, even the pitch and development stuff, like recently, they were one of, the first people to go explore the drive lines. Uh, Derek Falvey, who's now with the Twins, was a, he was with the Guardian or the Indians then, uh, and he was the first coach to go to some of these college clinics and start picking up on the high speed camera stuff or what's this weighted mm-hmm. ball stuff you're using. So they mm-hmm. were into that before, and now we see that commonly. But the Indians were Guardians. I'm going to snag up on that. The, the then Indians we're adopting that stuff, you know, 10 years ago, probably now. And when you're, you have the first mover advantage, right? So you test it first, you experiment with it first, you see how it affects guys first. So even though other teams are now using a lot of the same tech and training regimens, whether it's the weighted ball stuff, they, I think they just have a better knowledge base because they've, you know, been using it longer and have seen what works, what doesn't. Super interesting. Um, We're going to have to wrap up and let you go. I want to note, for the broader team here that Travis just said something. We're talking about one of the most analytic savvy organizations in baseball. He mentions culture and you just don't see those things run together very often. In fact, often they're opposed. And Josh Hermsmeyer, a football writer was on here a couple of weeks ago. And he said something about, he thinks analytics ought to give you a culture boost. It ought to buy you an edge that you can then spend on investing in your culture. And we only had like four minutes with him. We're like, Oh man, this is interesting. This intersection of culture and analytics I think is really interesting because very few organizations pull that off. And I think, I think you're right. The Indians might be the paragon of it. Super, super interesting. That is, no, that is a, it is a super interesting point and idea. And uh, you don't see a lot of people just leaving because they don't like working there. You know, I think it's a positive indicator. Uh, and that's, I mean, in professional sports, I mean, people move, that's just what happens in baseball. People are always moving in baseball. So if you have an organization where people largely don't move, it's saying something. Okay, before you go, who give us give us your if you had to pick the four teams to play in the ALCS and the NLCS, who would they be? <laughs> this is fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, same four as last year. I, no? <laughs> I, it does. It feels like they're super teams. I mean, how how can you bet against the Astros and what the Yank, Yankees have a loaded roster? And I really like the Rodon fit there. If you have him and Cole healthy in a postseason rotation, among they're going to be tough. Uh, NL's interesting. Like I feel like the with the Dodgers being the Padres have a chance to really do some damage in October this year, and I still like the uh, I still like the Braves a lot too. So those are my four picks. Okay, all right, 
the 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 Padres to step into the Dodger spot. That'll be fun. You didn't even um, have to say the Astros. We just knew it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, how long will that continue being the machine that it is? Because they've lost so much of their people to put in place, but they're still a dynamic team and it's um, hard to bet against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They belong in the national league though. Okay. <laughs> You'd be so much happier if they hadn't flipped that coming. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, listen, Travis, we'll let you go. Thanks for making time for us today. Love talking to you. Oh yeah. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. All right. Absolutely. Travis Sachik, MLB writer at the score, co-author of uh, big data baseball. And also more recently, the MVP machine with Ben Lindbergh. We strongly recommend the MVP machine. That's a great book on modern day baseball. That was Travis Sachik. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Wharton Moneyball. We're rolling into the third quarter now, another interview segment here on Wharton Moneyball. And to do that, the whole team is in here in Zoom. This is Cade Massey hosting with Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and we are delighted to welcome as a guest, a repeat guest for us, Todd Stusey. Todd, as many of you know, longtime offensive lineman in the NFL, two-time pro bowler, played 14 years, played with the Vikings, Panthers, Bucks, and Rams. He is now a product analytics lead. He's in the data science world at Unigroup. We have had the good luck of spending time with Todd both here and at the Wharton Moneyball Academy on campus. And we're always glad for time with him. Todd, afternoon to you. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Cade. Absolutely. What are you up to right now? Before we dive into that, we're going to talk about combine, but I'm curious, we're still a little bit in the wake of the season. We're, we're moving on. We're trying to move on. We're trying to, you know, cultivate new romances in our life, but we're still a little bit in the wake of the season. How did you feel about the 2022 NFL season? Any lasting thoughts from that season? Uh, no, it's, uh, I think it's, there was uh, swings in a lot of different directions. I thought uh, the playoffs were uh, pretty spectacular, all things. Uh, I would have loved to, I know you're in Philly. Uh, I would have loved to see the Eagles get one more chance to just to, see what they could do with it, even with limited time, uh, kind of right. ended with a little bit of a fizzle. Uh, right. But going into that last series, I think it was one of the better Super Bowls of recent memory. God, what is your thought, having spent some time with the Rams, and we just saw the Rams give the worst performance across the season for a defending champ in the history of the NFL, but they did get that championship. How do, yeah. As a player, from a player's perspective, how do you feel about the – chance they took and the cost they seem to have borne for 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 really maximizing the probability of that one Super Bowl. They ended up getting it, but it yeah. was a it was a it was a chance they took. Yeah, no, absolutely. Player, from the player's I, perspective. I don't know. For me, like I probably I have the fondest memories of my time in Minnesota. One, because we had a lot of success while I was there, but also there's a lot of continuity, stability, and that comes from building from the draft. Um, and when um, betting it all on the um, on the one season, basically sacrificing draft picks future years, it kind of undercuts the long-term potential of the organization. And while mm-hmm. I think that, you know what, I never went to it. I mean, I went to one Super Bowl a lot. That was a victim of uh, 
Tom Brady and the Patriots, I think, are his second Super Bowl title. Uh, mm-hmm. But all in all, it to me, if I were to do it, I'd rather be a part of something that was more sustainable, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I'm really getting at. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about that, Todd, it makes me wonder whether we as fans overweight championships. Is there any chance that as a player, you care about championships, of course, that's what you dedicate your whole life to, but you're also living this thing like day in, day out. You're part of a team. You've got these relationships. It's a huge part of your life in a way that, that it isn't as a fan. And it could be that, look, you care about these other things. You care about continuity. You care about the relationships. You care about being successful year over year. And yes, championships matter, but maybe we're a little disproportionate as fans in the way we think about it. Is that possible? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, Obviously, same championships are the only thing. Discounts Buffalo in the '90s uh, with uh, the four uh, trips to the Super Bowl—that's pretty amazing and hard to say it'll ever be repeated again. That also discounts someone like Dan Marino, which mm-hmm. uh, I mean, many people would say—I mean, best rookie season of a quarterback ever, uh, one of the most productive uh, careers ever. But you know what? That's a blemish. And so I think it's a balance. I mean, the dynasties are few and far between. And mm-hmm. that's the that's the gold standard. I think you can have success that's meaningful without the Super Bowl. Um, I'm mm. still kind of living uh, with the, uh, I don't I have an NFC championship ring. I've never put it on my finger. I don't think I probably ever will. It just, I mean, no, it's a loser's ring. I'm sorry. I appreciate Mr. Richardson for buying it for us. It's uh, something that I cherish. I'll never get rid of, but like there's something about winning that in society that is uh, revered. And I think uh, for better or worse, that's just the way it is. Okay. Okay. I mean, I I guess one way that you're kind of talking about that we shouldn't sort of necessarily, uh, lose sight of like good organizations or good processes just because that final coin flip doesn't turn out as a win. But I think it's also, I I think you're talking about an even more subtle thing that maybe you can speak a little bit more about that. Like um, this kind of idea of sort of like maybe taking high risks and, you know, kind of almost like tanking or, or, or trading the future for now kind of creates almost like a culture in the organization that's hard to get out of. Like, I, I think one of the reasons that NFL teams don't have a lot of success with tanking is the structural things that make tanking difficult, you know, but I think yeah. it's also that, you know, players and coaches don't want to tank because it kind of affects the entire culture of the organization in a way that probably the fans aren't necessarily taking into account. Is, is that something you've kind of experienced yourself? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that in, in the end it's, uh, there's a personal pride there that uh, my first year at Carolina, we won one in 15. We won the first game against my old team. The Vikings lost the next, next 15. Uh, we, it was, it sucked. It was hard. Uh, but you no, know I had a lot of pride in that team and the fact that we kept fighting all the way uh, to the very end. Uh, and uh, it was one of that, experience was one of the reasons we wind up going to the Super Bowl two years later under John Fox. Uh, a lot of the same guys are there and uh, all experiences you learn from. And so uh, I think looking back and saying like, you know what, we, uh, it wasn't the right outcome, but we took, we approached it the right way and we grew from it. I think there's a lot to be said with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
Todd, you, you said something that struck something in me, and I'm trying to blend your time on the field and also your current work in analytics. Tell me if I misinterpreted what you said, and I'd be interested in your opinion. Looking backward, if I'm sitting here today and I played for 10 years in the past, of course I'd like a ring and I'd be happy to sacrifice. But if you're forecasting 10 years forward, you want a consistent stream over that 10 years to have as many opportunities to win the Super Bowl. So is is it backward looking? Of course you'll take the ring. But the problem is you can't win in the past. You only win in the future. Is that how that's how I interpret what you said? But I'd be interested in your thoughts. No, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's a process thing. It's also kind of a probability thing. Like, you know what? You want as many opportunities as you can, and how do you how do you optimize or uh, try to give yourself the great? Because there's always chance. There's always luck involved, and so um, there's there's no good lottery number. The best thing you can do is buy more lottery tickets, if you will, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, in some ways that, but I, I think also there's a personal way, like, you know what, uh, success is defined over a long span where you're, it's based on how it's your process. I mean, don't, if you can look back and say, you know what, I, I approached the problem, right. Even if you don't have the optimal solution, you know what you learn, you get better, you grow. And I think in the long run, you're, you're in a better place for it. So uh, don't get caught up in, Noah, did we win or did we lose? Just one quick follow-up, Todd, to a word that you used in your uh, also answer. Is the current Kansas City Chiefs team, three Super Bowls in five years, winning two, are they a dynasty in your mind? You use the word dynasty. I just want your opinion about whether the Kansas City Chiefs yeah. in this five-year stretch are a dynasty. I think they're close. I, I, I mean, I think that, you know what, another one, another trip in next year, especially another win in the next two years, I think you have to throw them in the, uh, into the batch of uh, San Francisco 49ers, uh, uh, New England Patriots, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, because I think that's kind of the standard. Uh, they're certainly on, on the cusp for sure. So Shane is offering some definitions. I do think there's an interesting definitional question there. If we were algorithmically categorize people, what would that say? It's interesting. But Todd just went through and named the obvious historical. We'll go back before that even, Todd, the, the Packers, I guess, might have been the yeah, first. Yeah, absolutely. Cowboys. You might have to add the, yeah, the Cowboys in the early 90s. Yeah. You'd have to add that. Yeah. All right, guys, let's talk about the most active NFL issue at the moment, which is the combine. They have gathered in Indianapolis now. They're gonna it's it's a full week of meetings and tests and various things. It is the gathering in the NFL world because the entire organization is there. Um Todd, you you were there, you were there as a player, you were there um later, and um very curious what your thoughts are on it as first. How important is it? And and is it is it kind of silly? And um, should we keep on doing it? Should we keep on doing it? What what is what's your overall assessment of the whole combine? Yeah, I mean, in general, it's a uh, I think it's a worthwhile uh, endeavor for the players, for the coaches, the scouts. Uh, it's another data point. It's not uh, it's not the end all be all uh, of evaluation, but. Uh, as a data scientist, I'm, I, I'm always, even if it's um, data that's not entirely meaningful, it's still a feature. I, I, I throw all the features in the pod. I'd like to be able to look at them all 
And I, I think one of the issues is people look at them very linearly. Uh, fast means good, slow means bad. I think some of it, there's a lot of things that probably have thresholds uh, where, you know what, a bench probably doesn't matter to a wide receiver. And for a large extent, it's probably not an exclusionary feature for an offensive lineman below a certain threshold. Like I probably wouldn't draft someone in the first round if they were above 10 reps. But once they're like below, like, okay, now I'm worried. Is there something else going on? It, it winds up uh, begging further analysis. So I think a lot of these things are helpful and lead to further analysis that potentially could bring uh, more to the table. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask you, Todd, uh, I, we all love this idea that you just brought up of thresholds as opposed to things being just kind of linear forever. When you were in the NFL, did you ever hear coaches talk like that? Like, you know what, Todd, it's a threshold that mattered. You reached the <laughs> threshold. No, no, I'm being serious. Yeah, you're fast no. enough. We'd like you to work on this. Your, your past defense, your past blocking rate is good enough. We want you to work on that. Do people in the actual field, the coaches and the general managers, did they get the concept of threshold models? No, I don't think they do. I, I think it's uh, uh, in, in general, the, I think coaches are more looking at you as a, um, a finished product. They're not, there's very few players that are really being developed. There's just not the time in a season anymore for really being able to invest in it. Uh, you're, there might be weeks coaching, like critique, but it's really not like break them down, build them back up again. You're not working with like rock life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Todd, um, I've looked at combine data and it's not particularly correlated with performance. Um, but that of course is only one feature at a time. You really have to build a multivariate model that would add it in. Yeah. In your experience and memory, and I guess collectively all of us, are there examples? I know there are examples of people who were discovered at the, at the combine that basically flamed out. Are there a uh, converse example? People who, well, not exactly converse people who were discovered at the combine who actually turned out to be superstars or, or at least, you know, really, really great that didn't have much, attention until they uh, ace the combine? Probably not uh, just because there's the, you know what, you don't, you're not taking all covers, covers at the uh, combine. There's already a a filter that's applied and you, there's a lot of guys that didn't go to the combine, but were wildly successful. And one guy's uh, I think of off the top of my head, Larry Allen, Hall of Famer, Cowboys, um, he wound up actually, he didn't go to the combine. He came to, I went to Cal. Uh, he came to the Cal um, uh, pro day because nobody wanted to drive up to Sonoma State to visit him there. Right, right. So he worked out, we worked out together at the combine, I mean, at the uh, pro day at Cal. And uh, he, uh, so he wasn't at the combine, but uh, obviously he's had a stellar career, Hall of Fame jacket and, uh, is uh, probably the best offensive lineman of my generation. It's neat to hear you. Let's let's hold on for a second and hear more about pro days in a bit because there is some talk about, look, just do away with the combine and people can work out on pro days. Be curious to hear your thoughts on that, especially since you did both. But one one person that comes to mind, Adi, to your question, this is he wasn't quite discovered at the combine, but one of the recent examples of someone who popped at the combine and people really didn't know whether he had the skills and it's turned out well is, is Metcalf, DK Metcalf. 
um, who just was blowing people away with the speed and physique, but he hadn't done that much on the field in college. And then, and there were people deeply skeptical of him as a receiver. And he's just been fantastic as an NFL receiver. Yeah. An absolute specimen. I mean, I think that his physical traits, I mean, I've never seen him in college, but I got to imagine that just, it would, you think it'd leap off the film, but uh, um, it's, there's of course someone like that with those kinds of physical traits. It's almost, I mean, he's almost like a tight end wide receiver hybrid of sorts. It's uh, really a, a, a manufactured mismatch, if you will. Right, right, right. Todd, speaking of these physiques and what makes a good player, you're, were, you were an offensive lineman. You just talked about doing your pro day with, with uh, Larry Allen, one of the all-time in your generation. What, and you were talking about guys who don't test well. Or you're talking about how, how important is bench press? Let me think about Orlando Brown Jr. came out a few years ago, a great tackle out of Oklahoma. Ravens took him despite the fact that he didn't bench very well. And he's turned out to be fantastic NFL player. What yeah. does make a great offensive lineman? How how what should they be looking at in your sense in your experience and assessment? What are the equalities since it does seem hard to measure? Um, I think uh, movement being able to, to uh, I mean, if I had to pick one trait, I would say feet. It's all about feet. feet. If your if your feet if if you're able to make sure that your feet are in the proper location that you're able to move to a point in space and get set and then be able to adjust because there's all these intersection points that guy runs up field, you intersect, then they deviate and you have to then reset your feet and continue to move. It's, it, it truly is a, uh, there's not a great measurement for it, but it's one of those traits that, um, offensive line coaches will speak to it's like got kids got great feet uh mm-hmm. Corey stringer lake for stringer my teammate by uh, minnesota had amazing feet the guy would be able to um uh adjust and basically um what's the word i'm looking for be able to recover in a way that most guys just couldn't and mm-hmm. that uh he was never really out of balance and mm-hmm. so that's probably the biggest thing. And then the second is, uh, is having good hands, which um, just to basically protect your chest, be able to pass block in space and be able to redirect that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is that like the old wax on wax off? You need to have these kind of, you have, need to have these moves to keep the vendors hands a little off bit. Of- yeah, no, I mean, uh, being able to, it's all about, a lot of it's leverage. I mean, you have a guy running upfield that's uh, faster than you. A lot of times he's not as tall as you. He's trying to get underneath you, being able to break down an arm uh, to be able to deflect so that you, um, that you're, because if you're hunkered down to the point where you can take on a bull rush, then you're not going to be able to uh, move laterally or um, to be able to pivot in a way that allows you to continue to move a guy upfield. Two other quick questions about offensive linemen because it's they they are the least appreciated, most important, and least appreciated on the field. Um, what about intelligence, like football intelligence, and how, and may, maybe that's different on the edge than on the inside. I'm not sure. Like, how do you think about the ability to process, communicate, coordinate with each other? Where is the head in the OL assessment? Yeah, no, I think it's uh, 
important, uh, incredibly important, incredibly relevant, uh, uh, probably centers the most uh, um, specific where intelligence is a factor. Um, the <laughs> even though I never played center, I actually uh, my last uh, my last two years in in St. Louis, uh, uh, we had uh, um, our starting center. Adam, I'm not Adam, uh, uh, blink on his name right now. He wound up, Andy McCollum, that's it. Sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. he wound up going down the first game of the year and, uh, uh, with an ACL, he was done for the year and they decided to have Rich Incognito move to center. And, uh, I moved into Richie's spot at left guard. And, uh, I remember my O-line coach, Paul Pedro goes, but, uh, Richie, you don't know the F what you're doing. So uh, <laughs> you're not going to say anything, Todd, you're making all the calls. And I was like, okay, this will be new. This will be fun. Um, and uh, it was, it was incredibly engaging. I, I enjoyed it immensely. The only time I really would say that I didn't like it was it was the first game we're playing the 49ers uh, and we wind up, uh, Orlando uh, Pace uh, wind up uh, getting a concussion in the game. He's out, and I slide back out to tackle. Now the three uh, 49ers ran the three four hybrid defense, where they're basically popping between three four four three looks, okay, and with the same personnel. And the main key that you're looking at, because all the rules are based off of the first kind of decision point: is there a head up nose? If okay. there's a head up, if true, then you follow these set of rules. If false, yep. you follow these set of rules. It's one thing to be able to look at a at a nose and be able to tell from the guard position, but now you're <laughs> at the tackle position. I'm craning my head trying to see, and Ricky's like become deaf and mute. He won't tell me anything, and so it was uh, it was interesting to say the least. But uh, wow. that, so yeah, no, but uh, intelligence, being able to diagnose. Uh, determine what the defense is. Basically, uh, it's almost like a decision tree, and then be able to put them in the appropriate, put the protection in the appropriate uh, to minimize the risk and maximize the opportunity, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Todd, one last question um, on the OL that's that's that you just that just ra- raised with the story you told. Injuries. When we watch football, the guys that feel to some extent like they're most playing the lottery with their health are o- O-Lyman. And I'm curious if it's like that when you're playing. And, and do you feel like you have much control over whether you get rolled up, whether you you're, you get you, you hurt your ankle or hurt your knee, or is it just purely lottery? Is there some sense yeah. of some guys doing something or handling themselves or conditioning themselves in a way that they're a little bit more protected? And if it is just lottery, how do you, how do you play and commit yourself when you're exposed to lottery like that? I think there's... Um... Some of it is things you can handle. I mean, proper rest, uh, eat well, um, stretching is a, a big thing. Um, but I mean, some of it is pure genetics. I mean, I, I, I tell you, I've seen guys that have um, had what looked like nothing happened to them, a small, like a, a running back fall on the back of their legs and they're torn ACL and, or an MCL. And then there's sometimes where I look at the film after, like, how did I walk away from that? But there's, 
uh, actually later on in life, I wound up getting a um, an evaluation for like a post uh, uh, one of our player benefit things, and the doctor made the comment when they did my scan of my uh, knees, and he's like, "You have ACLs the size of like bridge cables," is what he said, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that probably had something to do with the fact they never had an ACL injury. I mean, uh, there's it's some easy. guys that are just built for the abuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Eric. Yeah. Todd, I was just going to ask you, um, you mentioned something. Let me ask as someone that now does analytics and someone that played, they always talk about the eye test. What can you as a player see that you don't think is captured by analytics? So we can measure someone's speed. We can even now measure, you know, maybe even their turn radius, maybe even the force with which they hit another player. But what does the player see? Like when you say Larry Allen was the best of your generation, is that, I mean, the analytics might say some of that, but what do you see that maybe can't capture through just measurement and data science today? Um, I think that they're getting closer to measuring some of these things like Larry Allen, uh, Richie Incognito and Randall McDaniel were the three guys that I've I've never seen an offensive lineman other than those three be able to you take a head up uh, defensive lineman and be able to move them off the ball without having any lateral movement, just hip roll and drive. Uh, and those three were exceptional at that. I don't think we're uh, with the RFID data. I don't think that's really being quantified yet, but I think it could be. There's the potential there. Uh, the immeasurables, I would say probably the biggest thing is uh, grit, perseverance, passion, all those things that are just immeasurable. But uh, how does someone wind up uh, responding to adversity? Uh, I mean, everyone's good in college. I mean, people are good in college, but everyone's good in the NFL. And got plenty of guys wind up seeing their first adversity in their first training camp. How do they respond? How do they react? I don't think that's really on anyone's spreadsheet, but it's a it's a uh, it's an essential, in my opinion, on uh, defining success mm-hmm. long term, at least. Todd, we're going to have to let you go soon, but can you give us a little advice on your way out as a football former football flight player, current football watcher, as a current data scientist? What do you think the the analytics community needs to do to get better? How can we better serve teams, fans, uh, those who want to understand the game? I, obviously, huge advances lately. Um, really interesting things going on. But what can we in your in your in your very unique position? What do you think we yeah. can do in the community to do better? I, I mean, this might sound really kind of uh, simplified. I mean, you see a lot of the quote unquote next gen stats talking about probabilities or being open and what's the uh, likelihood of this or that and what's the uh, so the in-game analytics are really interesting uh, I'd love to see and I, I don't have an insider's view but uh, the data the, the data is probably at a point where you could start doing some cohort groupings like understanding like being able to measure players and understand uh, okay what which players are similar this uh dissimilar matchups based on those similarities dissimilarities mm-hmm. and maybe that's happening i i'm not aware of any of it i haven't 
heard any of that yet, but to me, that's, uh, I think some, there's some low hanging fruit there that might not have been, uh, uh, captured yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there particular players you'd like to see those analyses run on? Are there players that you're curious about as you watch? Well, my eyes always drift to the offensive line, defensive line. I think that, uh, there's, um, there's a lot of guys that are, you, you see natural mismatches when you have some of the like third down defenses where they'll wind up having, uh, uh, dime packages and they have walk around guys that you don't know where they're going to line up. I remember Bruce Smith used to do walk up and down the line of scrimmage in Buffalo and then he tap someone on the hip and slide into a spot and you're like you're Russian roulette worried that he's going to line up over you uh I liked when he did that because if he wasn't doing that he was always over me uh, but <laughs> uh um uh, but anyways uh you see some of those mismatches where you have a guard with slow feet and a linebacker and a simple twist game causes fits uh to me those mismatches are uh like easy opportunities, like you don't have to buy a superior linebacker if you know that just speed against uh, size can wind up being giving you an advantage. Like you can potentially, there might be arbitrage opportunities there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Neat, neat, neat. Well, listen, Dodd, thanks for spending some time with us. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Have fun watching uh, whatever of the combine you might take in this week. And good luck with the work that you're doing. We hope we we talk with you more down the road. Absolutely. Love to, guys. Thank you. Todd Stussy. He's currently a product analytics lead in data science at Unigroup. Longtime offensive lineman, 14 years in the league, two-time pro bowler, and a repeat guest here on Wharton Moneyball. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have the fourth quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter, final quarter, open topic quarter. We've got the whole crew in here just off the phone, just off the Zoom line with Todd Stussy. Such a pleasure talking to that guy, huh? Thoughtful, experienced. When you get these guys who played that much football, I just want to ask them all my stupid fan questions. I'm afraid I do a, li- a little too much of that. But like, you know, how many people can you talk to about the experience of, you know, risking your knees and ankles every play for 14 years and what that's like? And man, it, it ends up giving us a story about the cables, the ACLs like bridge cables. Eric. I thought the thing he talked about near the end, which is this idea of and we've talked about this. It's just hard to measure is kind of the interactions between players. Let's imagine, for example, you had a player with a certain strength or weakness. Maybe you pair him with another player that covers up for that strength or weakness. I think his idea of both building cohorts, but also looking at interaction effects between players. I agree with him with the proper data and the proper way to look at that data. I don't want to call, he called it low hanging fruit. I don't know how low hanging it is, but I agree it would be something that would be really important for analytics to try to address. It's tough, right? I mean, we it's know, tough. We know, we know it matters, but um, it's tough. And it, we're, we're slowly, we're slowly getting there. Shane. Well, I just want to kind of extend that. I mean, I think I, I think in addition to interactions between players, especially players on a line or wide receiver and quarterback interactions between those players and scheme is the, also the frontier that I'm fascinated with that. I'm sure 
that, you know, in addition to certain, you know, like combinations of players probably having some kind of, you know, like not, you know, non-additive effect, you probably, there's certain players, you know, or, or cohorts of players that will succeed more or less in, in a particular scheme. So how a scheme right. kind of, you know, brings out the best or worst in players as well is something as a watcher of, of, of the Patriots offense this past year versus previous years, I've certainly uh, is fresh in my mind. So mm-hmm. let me, let me posit something building exactly on what Shane said. Let's imagine we had the opportunity. I'm just trying to be a data scientist here for a second. Let's imagine that for every play we knew what let's call it scheme or play was called. Let's also imagine we could measure players on a set of characteristics. Couldn't we understand what combination of characteristics and play would be successful? It's not exactly scheme as Shane's describing it, but couldn't we look at like, now that we know how to do high dimensional statistics, couldn't we have lots of measures on a bunch of players we're going to look at some neural nets. So we're not going to. So we're going to try to uncover patterns of characteristics in combination with a given play that tends to be successful. I would think that would be something that could be done today. But I'd love to hear Shane's thoughts on this. Well, I mean, I, I I agree, Eric. That I think you know, if if you had no other, no, if if you just were trying to do like what we would call an unsupervised unsur- right. kind of learning or unsupervised clustering, that's you're describing kind of, I think, how you'd go about that. And, you know, you'd probably want a pretty detailed model like a neural network. Uh, you know, what I think about is, you know, I think what would really help, especially because you don't have like, you know, I mean, I think that obviously the data challenge is, you know, you're not going to have a lot of observations on every kind of scheme, player, pair of player kind of combination. It would be nice to be able to kind of somehow boil down scheme into kind of like, what does this player for the scheme they're given? What does this player have to do on this play? And do they do that well or not in combination with the players around them? And maybe that's a way of kind of almost reducing sort of the, the dimensionality or reducing the, the complexity of what we call scheme into kind of what player actions are supposed to be taken and then what actually happens. So you're a true business person and optimizer at heart. I knew it, Shane. You know, it's funny because uh, you're, what you're describing is why, why we, is what we need, but we don't have it, right? So when, when, when Brandon Brooks came and talked to our students about judging offensive linemen, he was talking about PFF and all the other kind of analytical um, communities that they either use the tracking data or, or the observational data. You don't know what they were intended to do um, because the players don't often do what they were supposed to do. You really have to, you have to know what, the, what was the play called and yeah whether everyone did the right thing. And while that's not impossible, there is uh, it's um, the, the teams themselves do a lot of their own charting because they know what was supposed to have happened and what actually happened. I'm so, I think we're years away from doing that without the supervision. I mean, what I mean by the supervision, the, the labeling, the actual experts, the coaches, the players who can actually say, this is what was supposed to happen. And now let's judge what, whether, whether people did their jobs or whether they, when they were doing their jobs, how well they did them. It's very hard to football is I'm going to, I've said, said this recently, at least once I'll say it again. It's a damn complicated game in, in a way that um, other, the other sports on a play by play basis are not nearly as intricate. Well, yeah, no, this, I, is, this is why I'm not optimistic about where we're going anytime soon with, with neural nets and unsupervised work because there's just not that much data. No, and I, but I, I, I think maybe I, I think Audi's maybe uh, 
underestimating the job that the PFF people do. Like, I think the supervised learning of this, I mean, I agree that you, you don't truly, you, you don't truly know what the scheme was on a particular play, but from the actual kind of overall action of the various players, I, I think, I, I think the PFF people probably have a pretty good idea of what the player should have done on that play, what the scheme kind of had them trying to do. And then they, you judge whether or not it kind of you know well, so I I, I I think I think I, guess, I think uh, you, you're, I you're kind of arguing that somehow we're not actually yeah, PFF, yeah it's not able to evaluate linemen at all all right I'm gonna we I'm can. only uh, neither you nor I are experts I'm just saying that this is what the offensive linemen have said um, do they know themselves I don't know and but they'll basically say that um, uh, that they'll get a good PFF rating when in actuality they screwed up terribly um, or and vice versa. Because the the Raider just doesn't know what was actually supposed to be happening on the Audie, I I I I'm mostly with Shane on this because I think I think this is a protest you hear from those that are super close to the game and they're right that errors happen, but you make up for it with you know observations and errors are going to be noisy. Basically, they're not going to be systematic, right. and you you it's amazing to me what analysts can tell you about you know look this is a you know a a. a, a inside zone play and in an inside zone play, they know what the responsibilities generally are and they can kind of suss it out to a large extent so that we can do something. But I think that that kind of structure, given how limited data we have in the NFL and Adi, you just how complicated the game is. I mean, look, Eric started this whole conversation by saying we can work with such high dimensional data. Now we can, but we don't have the observations to support it. I mean, if you had one dimension for every player, one, You've got 22 measures, and then you have to start running interactions and non-linearity terms. And it's just an immediate mess for every play. And we don't get that many plays. And so it's you need, I, I think, I think you have to impose a lot of structure to have any hope of pulling something out of that stuff. Um, what about the combine guys? So um, Eric, this is one of the um off-season sports, I know that catches your attention. What what remains interesting to you, or what? Well, how has your interest in the combine changed over time? I mean, it feels like people understand it to be the circus slash entertainment that it is better than they used to. Well, let me let me say two things. One, building on our just our previous guest Todd Stucy, I think it's very interesting to see what I call the self-selection process. Who chooses to participate in what in the combine? And I, I would say I almost was thinking of it like, and since I'm a Bayesian, it's hard for me not to think like a Bayesian, but I, I think it in the following sense. Let's imagine I'm Bryce Young. And so I'm already projected to go in the top in the draft. And so what additional, let's, let's be a Bayesian and a decision theorist. What gain do I have by going to the combine and participating in a bunch of drills where I might perform well, but not as well as someone else? And what does that help me? In other words, right, right but now, it, that has to be that has to be pitted against the signal you send. If you no, no, I understand that. I'm saying I don't think people pit as much on the self selection of choosing not to compete. And really? I think really? from a loss function perspective, the people that should choose to the compete are the ones that have the most to gain and and don't have as much to lose. And so that is what I'm exactly questioning. And is that I think this self selection process is used strategically by the players. And then what they do is they'll say, and I have a second point which they'll talk about later, but then they actually just say, I'll, I'll participate at my pro day. There's yeah. lots of advantages to participating at a pro day right. as opposed That's to right. the combine. Yeah. yeah just I, to make I, this concrete, I can tell you that the, I can tell you that the, uh, the conversation about Bijan Robinson has been exactly this. There's because he's going to run the 40 
and you know, people know he's off the charts in so many ways, but the one thing they're a little worried about him is the, is the long distance speed. And so the, there's a community, you know, I, these, we have a fan board, of course, among many, the university of Texas, and the speculation is that he's going to run better than people think he's going to run because he's choosing to run that if he was going to run in the four sixes, he wouldn't run. So the fact that he's choosing to run probably means that he's going to do better than we expect. Shane. Yeah. I mean, it's a two-sided market. I mean, I, I, I think Eric, you somehow seem to be arguing that somehow the player strategy is the fact that players are, can be strategic about what things they participate in that somehow not know. I mean, I, I think probably scouts, coaches, every evaluators must, must pick up on the signal that if you choose not to do something, there is, you know, some information in that, in that to not do something. Right. I mean, I, so I, I think, uh, yeah, but do I they mean, do it I, enough? Do they do it enough? I guess right, right, there. right, right. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's obviously I you can kind of imagine that it's worse to participate and do badly than it is to not participate. I I just think so, the concept but, of the concept of non-ignorable missingness is not that well understood. Self-selection and not and so people look at bad people know how to integrate bad performance in some way. I don't think they know how to integrate as well non-performance. I love it when know. you're behavioral, Eric. I love I love it when you're behavioral. So the uh our friend Kevin Cole, who was just on the show a couple of weeks ago, has been running some pretty sophisticated analyses on the combine. He's been looking at data, what is this, 2006 to 2019. And he looks at two things, which is, is I think exactly the right way to think about it. What impact does performance have on the the person, the athlete's draft position? And then what, what impact does it have on their NFL performance? And he, he looks at it across, you know, whatever the eight or nine key tests that most players do. And he looks at it for different position groups. So for example, one of the most interesting and coming out of our conversation with Todd Stucey in last quarter, he looks at interior offensive linemen and he finds that the 40 time, imagine the 40 time for an interior offensive lineman has a, the biggest effect on the board is um, for, for IOL is the 40 time it, uh, that has one standard deviation move and 40 time increases the percentile seven, seven percentile improvement in where they drafted and only two percentile improvement on where they actually end up performing. Flip it around for shuttle. Shuttle is undervalued. And the biggest effect that on the actual NFL performance among interior offensive linemen is their shuttle time. A one standard deviation improvement on shuttle time increases their performance in the NFL four and a half percentile. It increases the draft a little bit too, but not as much. So it's this interesting flip where they have this weird weight on a 40 yard dash for an offensive lineman and less on the shuttle. I don't know which of you guys want to jump in first. I don't, you guys let, can let me jump in. I've read, I mean, there are two things here. One is the, is the uh, causal arrow um, and, uh, and playing time as there, you know, if you do really well at these, um, at these scores, you end up with more time, you get more opportunity and that drives your performance numbers, particularly some of these positions where really are about collecting time on the, on the field. The second thing is I want to wonder about, you know, standard errors and uncertainty. These, some of these effects look awfully small. Um, and, all, uh, or, or, all, yeah, my, my point, small. my point was going to be multiple testing. So he's testing yeah. how many positions oh, yeah. by how many combine things, <laughs> And focusing on the largest effects, there's like about a hundred different combinations. Yeah, yeah, like we that. call that uh, post-selection inference. And damn, that's hard stuff to get right. And yeah. and I'd be uh, concerned. Well, to be fair, he's not running significant tests on these. He's just throwing out the numbers. And I think that there are some interesting. I think like this flip that I just described, forty versus shuttle. 
is like theoretically plausible. That makes sense. The 40, we know the 40 is overweighted. And it could be that some of these lesser known, newer tests are, are yet to be valued properly. But fair yeah. enough, fair enough point. I also just wanted to build, I, where I thought you were going to go, uh, Cade, with uh, Todd Stussy's comment is, one of the things I actually think they're getting better at at the combine is what I would call a threshold. Like you'll hear an announcer say, oh, the lineman ran a 498. That was good enough. Like he's not going to run again. Like he could improve to 492, but so what? Like they, I, I really do. This, I'm going to take notes when I'm watching the combine this week. And every time I hear someone say, not a what we call a vector space model, which means more is necessarily better, they give something that sounds like a threshold effect. I'm going to write it down and I'm going to bring it to next week's show because I think they do get it. You know, that guy ran at least a four or five. That's good enough. He, he, the, the lineman ran less than a five oh. That's all we care about. That person did 20 benches. Who cares if they did 30? they are starting to get that there's kind of a non-linearity. So I always worry, forget the multiple significance test, which I'm very worried about, which Kate, uh, which uh, Shane and Adi talked about. I'm worried this assumption of linearity just does not hold. And I, I don't want to look at linear relationships between these things. Speed is one example. And you ask me what catches my eye at the combine. You run a sub 4-4, you're going to have an effect on the NFL field. There's something different about people yeah, that so run not, sub 4-4. But now you now you're talking now you're talking about a different kind of nonlinearity, which I think is really interesting. So you're saying for some tests, it's very concave. You need to be above a certain threshold, and beyond that, we shouldn't put much weight on it. And then you're saying, but there are these others that seem to be more convex, where it probably doesn't matter for a long range. But then when you're truly exceptional you start being to make a big difference. And, and, and I, I think speed is one of bad. them because I think like in most sports, we're starting to get this concept. We've heard it about soccer. We've heard it about other sports, about creating space. You create space when you have immense speed. So Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I guess it's just sort of like, you know, but, and I agree, moving away from linearity to threshold, but the, th- the threshold is like, you know, it's still a nonlinear model. It's just like with the one, with one change point, it's like, well, right. you're sub four, four, you know, you're going to do great stuff on the football field. 4.41. Are you no, going to do great absolutely stuff? not? Not good enough. I'm joking. <laughs> but, but Shane, I love Shane's point because in general, I hate thresholds and I have a knee jerk reaction against thresholds. And I think that we're calling something we're calling concavity threshold and we're probably doing a disservice to it. One of my one of my favorite quotes is, is uh, surely God loves a p value of 0.050 just about the same as He loves a p value of 0.0499. I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> one is below 0.05. I mean, yeah, we do get hung up on these threshold models too, sometimes to our detriment. Um, but on the other hand, just to, 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 in its favor, at some point there's someone doing something that's so unexpected in their be, in their abilities that just messes everything up. So. Um, Again, Brandon was telling this great story to us about how a lot of their, you know, young players come out of college and uh, and they're trying to run around the defense because in college they could do that. But then but the 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 defensive um, these big defensive linemen on the other side are just much faster than they ever expected and it just doesn't work. And now now take that to the the professional level when someone does something that's just so much better or unexpectedly better than everybody else, your systems can fall apart. Um, and that's really um, almost like a, a link of a chain. You know, when you're, if you're sufficiently good at something, then, then, you're, then the, the plan that you have, and football is a lot about planning, just isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, all right, one last note on the, on the combine. Eric, what is the thing you're most looking forward to about the combine, whether it's a player or a, or a test? No, I mean, it's, it's, I love watching the 40 yard dash. And I love, and, but it's not, I, it's not just the running backs. Maybe I like the following. I, I guess it would be technically momentum, which would be size times speed, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't mean my momentum, which, by the way, notice how I snuck in momentum again. Look how I did it. But this time I'm talking about the physics one. I love it when a guy like, let's say even take mentioned by Todd Stussy, you guys in the previous segment, when DK Metcalf, a guy that's 240 pounds, or maybe he's 260, I don't know, whatever he is. When he runs a 4-3, you're like, how is that possible? So I like it when the big guys can, I, like when Daryl Green runs a 4-2 something, that's impressive. When Bo Jackson runs a 4-2, I'm like, how the hell is that? How did this 230-pound, 40-pound guy run a 4-2? I love it when the big guys can run real fast. It's that, it really, literally momentum, if you'd like. We, you know, increasingly, people are able to infer speed from tracking on the field. And so, and in fact, it's speed that matters in a more practical way than a 40-yard dash in shorts in Indianapolis. And so it's, I'm curious how, when, we, as we continue to evolve and we get better and better tracking data on players from college, what role these 40 yard dashes have versus what we've seen on field over the last few years, you know, we're, we're only developing the ability to do this, but it's coming and it'll be interesting to see how the combine adapts. Shane. Yeah. Well, I mean, that you just pointed to something I would love to kind of like, eventually if we can get sort of like, you know, the combine 40 yard dash, I guess, represents or sort of like uncontested in a vacuum sort of speed once we start having more sophisticated data we can start measuring kind of for that given speed which players are getting kind of unusual sort of separation actually in on-field play and is that separation a function of somehow you know physicality versus like route running versus again well that's interesting whatever you're, you're saying really if we had a measure of how a guy does from player tracking in college we might use combine to better, you know, understand that. You could use a combine, kind of, right? Exactly. What, kind of try what to measurables explain the route running from just the raw speed, etc. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, guys, we've got just a couple of minutes before we end the show here. Any topics we haven't talked about today that we need to touch on? Well, I, I feel like I should point out. I mean, just as a little update, the Bruins are still going gangbusters. They've won seven straight. They're still on historic pace. And I just thought I'd mention specifically this week, even their goaltenders scoring goals. We had, yeah, we had right. a, a that was great fun. Check out Linus Olmark scored a goalie goal. It's, it's only, I think the 15th or 16th time it's happened in NHL history that goalie has scored, uh, has scored a goal. It's a pretty one. And yeah. So you know, just thought I'd mention that. It launched that thing. It, yeah. it was it was it was airborne half the ice, right, or maybe three quarters of the ice. Yeah, and I've had some people ask me, and it's kind of subtle. People that don't follow hockey closely, like why goaltenders don't try and do like why have there been so few of these kind of goals? Obviously, under the understanding that you pretty much need an empty net situation for a goaltender to score. Why aren't they constantly launching it down the ice to try and get a goalie goal? The, the answer really is it's kind of a risky move because if they miss, it's icing and the, and, and possession comes back to their zone. So yeah. so kind of shooting it, shooting it down yeah. the ice with at an empty net is is a little bit of a risky game, because if you get it, of course, 
game over. But if you don't get it, you've actually done yourself a team a disservice relative to trying actually carrying it out and retaining possession. That's a great, that's a great PSA for all of us hockey um, ignoramuses. So Shane, I know we only have about 15 seconds, almost like a yes, no answer. Do you think it's possible that the Bruins chase the record and it hurts them for the playoffs because they're trying too hard to get wins as opposed to setting themselves up for the playoffs? Yeah. I mean, to the extent that there's kind of load management and stuff like that in hockey or that, you know, you're obviously risking injuries. They could probably rest people more in the last couple weeks of the season if they weren't chasing kind of a historical mark. I don't know if that does them a dis. I mean, you of course the counter argument is you want to kind of stay fresh and you don't want to take the gas foot off the gas right before the playoffs too. So I don't exactly know reality, but yeah, certainly you could make an argument that you know for load management and injury prevention reasons, there is at least some argument to taking the foot off the gas at this point in the season. It'll be interesting to see to what extent they do try to meet that record. We can, we can watch, you can watch the player load as they go down here, the last part of the season and see whether they end up doing it. Um, all right, guys, uh, more hockey down the road, more football down the road. We'll talk about the surprises from the combine when we get together next week. But for this week, that has been Wharton Moneyball. That's been two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM for the whole team. The crew that was with me, the whole show, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, for the boss man, Matty Dads, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Many thanks. And thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>